go over torts real quick. Uh, torts seem to be pretty straightforward today. We finished our discussion on battery and we um, ended up moving, well, finished our discussion on battery, covered assault, and moved into false imprisonment. So there are several cases that we talked about. Our first case that we mentioned was going to be new. No, no, no. That's for false imprisonment. The first case that we talked about was Fisher. Uh, in this case, there was the um, plaintiff. He worked for NASA. Uh, he was an African-American who worked for NASA at a time where uh, the civil liberties of African-Americans were not respected very well at all. Um, but he was at this hotel uh, for an event that NASA was holding. And while he was standing in line to grab some food, and the defendant or a worker of the defendant snatched his plate and uh, called him uh, well, a racially charged uh, phrase and then ended up, which ended up causing a lot of embarrassment to the plaintiff who then filed suit. Uh, the jury directed a verdict. After you receive a verdict, you need to receive a judgment from the court for that verdict to be carried out. And then in this case, what happened is that the judge chose not to carry out that verdict by giving a judgment and instead uh, and pretty much just dismissed the case. Uh, so the plaintiff appealed and it went to the Supreme Court. Well, for this to be considered a battery, the biggest takeaway is the person did not touch, well, so the defendant did not touch the plaintiff, but he did touch what the plaintiff was holding. And not only did he touch what the plaintiff was holding, but it was like intimately connected to his person. So the takeaway from this is you don't have to touch the person to commit a battery. Instead, if you touch or make contact with the with an object that is intimately connected with the individual, you may have committed a battery. Okay, let's moving into an assault. So assault requires three things. First, the intent to commit a battery. Second, the plaintiff's apprehension that a battery could be committed. And three is the contact would occur if there is, if it's not prevented in some way. Um, but the first two are the biggest ones that we uh, focus on. One important thing that we learn is that a battery requires, and so not every battery requires an assault. Uh, and that's because a person could have a battery committed against them without knowing that it could happen, meaning someone could come up behind you and whack you over the head with a rock and you never would have seen it coming. And so that would be a battery, but not an assault. Most of the time, though, batteries and assault go hand in hand. So let's explore a case of an assault. So we have Western Union uh, v. Hill. I Sorry, try and be a little bit more quieter for the person in the other room. So Western Union v. Hill. You have the Hills who went in to fix a clock. Mrs. Hill who went in to fix a clock. 
Okay, I really apologize for that one. Um, Mrs. Hill went in to fix a clock, and then um, Mr. Sapp, who was working over the counter at the time, um, propositioned her, if that's the right word, pretty much just asked for some favors um, in order for the clock to be fixed, and then uh, reached over the counter in an attempt to touch Mrs. Hill. Well, she jumped back, but in this instance, the question is, in her mind, whether or not there was a reasonable attempt to commit a battery, or whether or not a battery could have been committed. Not only that, it's whether or not um, whether or not SAP would have been able to commit a battery. And the reason why that's an issue here is because the encounter was on pit high and so far long so that he wouldn't have been able to reach over the counter. The jury found in this instance that he would not have been able to commit a battery, or at least it wasn't. It was reasonable. Uh, it was not reasonable in her mind, in Mrs. Hill's mind, to and that a battery would have been committed. At least that's what the appeal ended up saying. It was quite a confusing case, but assault requires those three things, an intent to commit a battery, plaintiff's apprehension that a battery could be committed, and the contact would occur, and battery would occur if it was not prevented in some way. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about false imprisonment, which is the last thing we focused on today. Uh, false imprisonment is requires two things. First, restraining the physical liberty of another, and two, doing so without adequate legal, legal justification. For this case, we talked about Newman. Newman was an elderly gentleman. He uh, had several health problems, and as a result, him and his nephew decided to try out a nursing home. Uh, the nursing home papers say that he was free to leave at any time, but when Newman attempted to leave, they detained him. Uh, and not only kept him there, but they put him in a ward. Uh, it's called Wing 3, and that was designed specifically for alcoholics, uh, mentally insane people, and it was a way to do solitary confinement. And in Wing 3, they had a restrictive, a restraint chair. Uh, that would prevent uh, Newman from doing any further action. So Newman attempted escape wing three several times, about five or six times, and eventually he was successful. He got a taxi, uh, went to a friend's house, and, uh, and consequently uh, filed suit. So was Newman false imprisoned in this case? And, well, obviously the facts here is yes. He was held against his will. And there was no adequate legal justification. In this case, though, it's interesting. Um, what happened is that there was a remitter. In a remitter, that means that the jury found damages that were excessive. And so the defendant in this instance would say, those damages are excessive. We can't pay that. It should be about this much for a false imprisonment. And the judge says, 
I see your point. And he tells the plaintiff um, to consider a remitter, which is damages for less. And if the plaintiff accepts the remitter, he gets those damages. If he doesn't accept the remitter, saying, yes, I believe that I am entitled to the damages that the jury told me, well, then the judge can say, okay, we'll have a new trial. We'll see if you are eligible for these damages based off of the new trial. So that's a remitter. Uh, We talked about a couple other rules. Uh, In Parvi, we learned that false imprisonment is designed to protect your frame of mind. So if you're unaware of custody, there is no false imprisonment. But the if there are facts that prove that you were aware of custody at the time. So in Parvi, uh, he was drunk. So he was taken into custody, dropped off somewhere. And then later he was uh, told that he didn't want to go into custody, but he didn't recall it at all. What matters is your frame of mind at the time the false imprisonment occurs. Uh, There's going to be one more case that we talk about tomorrow about false imprisonment, but that was it Uh, for now. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.